Let's go to God and ask Him by His grace and Spirit to do the very thing that we've sung about. Father, we come to You needy as people who on our own are dust, who on our own have no ability to taste the spiritual delights of truth and of Your Word and of Christ and of salvation. We are utterly dependent upon You. Jesus, you told your disciples and us that apart from you, we can do nothing. And apart from you and apart from the Spirit of God, we can understand nothing. And so we ask you now to come and remove whatever veil might lie over our hearts or our minds. Remove anything that would be obstructing us to gladly hear with spiritual ears and spiritual eyes all that you would reveal to us in your word about yourself, may we at the end delight in Christ more from having come together and sat under your word than we did before we came in. We offer ourselves to you and we ask you please to meet with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to be taking a break this morning from our normal march through the gospel of Matthew. We finished, as you know, last week, chapter 22, and this morning we're going to pull the car over, as it were, for just a moment and consider a very important topic, that is the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now next week, uh, Pastor Reardon is going to begin a series, and then when that series is finished, then we'll pick back up uh, in Matthew chapter 23 and look closely at Jesus' overwhelming indictment of the Jewish leadership and indeed the Jewish nation as he exposes the wrong heart that they have before God. As I said this morning, we're going to take a brief brief moment to look a little bit more closely at the issue of the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus has just laid that out before these leaders when he referred to Psalm 110 and asked them a question that was supposed to cause them to think more deeply than they had to confront them with what their own scriptures revealed that they had missed and in fact denied, namely that there was more to Jesus than that he was just a man. Indeed, his whole ministry was to reveal him as the Son of God as well as Messiah and the Savior of Israel. Now, Jesus then is just laid before his opponents and all men an overwhelming reality that again they refused to come to grips with. But this very truth about the deity of Christ would be the central proclamation of the church after his resurrection and after the coming of the Holy Spirit. And with that appearing of Christ and with that proclamation, there was introduced to the world a concept of God that it had never even fathomed in its mind. Namely, that there is but one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this reality was forced upon not only the nation of Israel, but upon the world at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was vindicated in His life, it was vindicated in His resurrection, and it was vindicated in the sending of the Holy Spirit, which He did when He returned to the right hand of the Father, having received the promise of the Spirit, and it was poured out on the church. Now, although it took years to give clear articulation to this truth through the creeds of the church, 
as various errors of Satan were attacking the very name of God, the very name of Christ, nonetheless, it was the understanding of all who knew Christ and had truly responded to the gospel in faith. Now, while this reality was unmistakable at the appearing of Christ, it was also not unrevealed, though concealed in a measure, though subtle in a measure, it was not unrevealed and it was not absent in the Old Testament. Now, because of the massive nature of this topic, we obviously are not going to be able to go in full detail this morning, and certainly not in one message. So we will be very limited, we will be very narrow in the approach we take this morning. And first, we're going to consider some of the hints of deity in the Old Testament, and then we're going to look briefly at the revelation or the affirmation of that deity in the person of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Now, the goal here this morning is to just give a glimpse of the glory of Christ in all of Scripture. And it is to whet your appetite, really, in some measure. And I would suggest, then, that if an appetite is wet, as hopefully it will be, that you will explore these things even farther. Let's begin by looking at Christ in the Old Testament. Hence to the Christ or the deity of Christ in the Old Testament. And we're going to begin first by looking at a name of God. A key name of God. It is the name Elohim. Elohim. It's used over a thousand times in the Old Testament. And it is a fascinating reference or title for God. Turn back in your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We're obviously going to be flipping around at a few texts this morning, so be ready to do a few sword drills as we uh, bounce around God's holy word. So beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And Genesis 1-1 says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. We have then in the very opening words of God's revelation, a title for God, which is Elohim, Elohim. Now there is a discussion about the root that stands behind this term, which we will mention in just a moment. But first, I do want to make a quick footnote here, uh, an addendum to something that was said last week. And I was going to send this out in an email, but I thought it would be easier if we're just all gathered together. Jehovah came from Yahweh, which is all consonants, and then it was supplied, uh, we get Jehovah from Yahweh, and then the supply of the vowels from the word Elohim, not Adonai. I made that as a quick reference and realized immediately afterwards uh, that it was not Adonai, but Elohim. So please forgive me for that. But Elohim, the vowels from Elohim are what were combined with the consonants of Yahweh. That's where we get the term Jehovah. But here I want to take special notice of this term. What is the root of it? One possibility is that it comes from the root L, which is a common word for God. It could be capital G or small g. It was a general term for deity. And it's even used on occasion to refer to men and angels. Although its predominant use in the Old Testament is to refer to the true God of Israel. And often it's attached with such descriptive terms as the God of gods in Daniel 11.36. Or the God of heaven in Psalm 136. Or the God of truth in Psalm 31 and so on it goes. 
There's another possibility that the root behind this term is Eloha, which is not a Hawaiian term, it's Hebrew. I think my pronunciation is close here. But is Eloha, which has the basic meaning, again, of God or gods, but is always in Scripture used to refer to the true God of Israel. Now, the significant issue for us, however, is not the root of the term, which both are used as a reference to God. It is rather the form of the term. Elohim is the plural form. It could be of either El or Eloah. Now, by itself, this is not significant. The plural is used when speaking of multiple gods throughout Scripture. So, for example, in Exodus 12.12, the plural form is used to speak of the gods, the multiple gods of Egypt. In Genesis 35.2, it's used to refer the plural form to the foreign gods that were among them. However, this specific form, Elohim, is used almost exclusively in reference to the one true God of Israel, which is striking. In fact, it's stunning. And what's even more striking is this, is that whenever this plural form, this plural form of a noun is used in reference to God, it's accompanied with a singular verb or a singular pronoun or a singular adjective. In other words... It is a plural form that is treated grammatically as a singular, as a singular. And this is significant, for it is the singular God of Israel that is referred to as something that is more. It has the idea of plurality. Now look back down a little bit further in Genesis, and we'll see a striking example of this. We'll look at verses 26 through 27. Familiar words, but follow along and I'll make a few notes as we read through this. It says in verse 26, Then God, that's Elohim, said, there's our singular verb, Let us, that's a plural pronoun, make man in our, a plural pronoun, image, according to our, plural pronoun, likeness. Skip down to verse 27. God, Elohim, Created, singular verb, man in his, singular pronoun, own image. Now that's a striking grammatical feature. That's noticeable. It stands out. I want you to just notice three things about what's going on here. In verse 26, God Elohim in the plural is spoken of as one, placed with the singular verb said. Note secondly, that in the context of divine speech, All of a sudden, these plural pronouns are used. Notice in verse 26, your quotation marks. God is speaking there. He's speaking. And when He speaks, the singular God is speaking in the context of a plurality. Of more than one. Of more than one. Note thirdly, when you go down to verse 27, you return back to the context of narrative. You're now leaving divine speech and you're entering again into narrative. And again, the plural Elohim is used with a singular then pronoun. Now this is a striking interplay of God as plural and yet singular. Now the rabbis were somewhat perplexed by this, but since they did not understand God as a plurality, only as a singularity in the fullest sense of the word, they said here then these pronouns must be referring then to angels. It must be referring to angels, the us and the ours. 
However, this is difficult to maintain in light of the fact that these plural pronouns for God are immediately identified in verse 27 with the singular God. And the conversation is clearly implied to be one that God is having with Himself. It is the image of God that man is created. Now, because this perplexed them, this was the best that they could do. Now, others have suggested here that the plural form of Elohim then is called a plural of majesty. A plural of majesty. You may hear that term if you do any reading about it. And they would say what it means is simply this, that it's the way like a monarch would refer to himself who's possessing all of the attributes of power. If it were a pagan king who were possessing all of the certain characteristics or quality of their pagan gods. However, there's no example of this in Scripture It doesn't fit the Old Testament usage and it cannot explain the interaction here between these singular verbs and this plural noun for God. The point is, this is striking. This is something that grabs our attention. It is something that is unexpected. Now this does not prove the doctrine of the Trinity. It does not prove it at all. But what it does is it introduces into the idea of God A plurality. A plurality. It shows that within the reality of the one true God of creation, there is a glorious and a mysterious implication of more than one. It is a mystery that would leave the mind questioning, thinking, considering. And yet it's something that cannot be pierced by the human mind alone, but requires divine revelation. Let me note a second point with that in mind. That there is a more specific aspect of God's revelation that, that introduces the idea of plurality into the concept of the one God who is. And that is the title, Angel of the Lord. Now I mentioned that just briefly last week, and we certainly can't be comprehensive when we look at it this morning, but I want to take you to just a few texts. There is in Scripture this mysterious figure known as the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. Also called in Scripture the angel of God or his angel or sometimes simply the angel. This mysterious figure is mentioned approximately 64 times in the Old Testament. And he's mentioned in a way that places him in a unique relationship with God who is distinct from God and yet equal to God. Now the term angel simply means messenger. But this is a messenger of the Lord who clearly, clearly has a unique relationship to God and shares with him a glory. Now these appearances of the angel of the Lord are sometimes referred to as, you might know this term, theophanies, which simply means a manifestation of God, or sometimes referred to as Christophanies, which would simply be a way to refer to a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Son of God before He appeared in the New Testament, united to flesh permanently. Now turn in your Bibles quickly over to Genesis 16. Genesis chapter 16. Now this is the first appearance of this angel. This angel of the Lord. In Genesis 16 verses 7 through 11. Now the context here is that Hagar, Sarah's maid, Hagar the mother of Ishmael by Abraham, has been banished from her home by Sarah. 
Sarah became jealous when Hagar conceived the child by Abraham while Sarah was still barren, that is, without child. So she's banished off into the wilderness. She is put out of her home. And that's where we meet her in verse 7 and are confronted with this, for the first time in Scripture, this figure, the angel of the Lord. So it says in verse 7, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. He then enters into conversation with her. He asks her where she is going in verse 8. And then the angel commands her to return back to Sarah, Sarah followed by a promise in verse 9. He says, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. Now this echoes and reflects in a lesser way the promise that was made to Abraham. Here a similar promise is being made in terms of descendants to Ishmael. This angel of the Lord then names the child Ishmael in verse 11 and prophecies concerning his future in verse 12. Now notice Hagar's response to this angel of the Lord. She says in verse 13, then she called the name of the Lord, which I might add is a striking feature here. This is the only instance in all of scripture where God is named by someone else. And yet here she does that in an an overwhelming response to this experience that she has just had with this angel of the Lord. It says, then she called the name of the Lord, Yahweh there, who spoke to her, you are a God, Elohim, who sees. For she said, have I remained alive here after seeing him? Clearly, she understood that she was in the presence of God. This angel was more than a messenger, though he was not less than a messenger. Notice then that this angel speaks with God's authority. I will greatly multiply your descendants. He distinguishes himself from Yahweh because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. And what is her response? It is a response of worship. She recognizes that she has just been in the presence of God. Turn back over to to Genesis chapter 21. And again, we're going to have an experience with this angel of the Lord and again with Hagar. Hagar obeyed the voice of the angel. She returned to Sarah. She gave birth and raised Ishmael. But now she is again banished from Sarah's presence and again sent into the wilderness. Except this time, rather than sitting by a spring of water, she and her son Ishmael are near death. It says in verse 15, the water in the skin, which was given to them when they left, was used up. It was gone, and there they were left to languish and to die in the wilderness. In fact, she left Ishmael under a tree and then distanced herself from him so she would not have to see him die in verse 16. And again... Here in this situation, it says in verse 17 that God heard the lad crying and the angel of God called to Hagar in verse 17. It is the angel of God who called to her, he says, from heaven. What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. And then in the following verse, he again reaffirms God's promise with his own authority. Notice that. I will make a great nation of him. 
Again, this angel appears and he speaks from heaven and he speaks with the authority of God. He is distinct and yet he speaks as equal. Let's look at just a few more references of this and then we'll bring this all together. Turn over to Genesis 22 or look there just one chapter over. In Genesis 22, God is testing the obedience of Abraham with the ultimate design in this test to prove his faith and to prove him to be one who is worthy to bear the covenant for his people, to stand as the example, as it were, to the covenant people of God in trusting their God. He is the one through whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in Genesis 12, 3. And here God is proving His worthiness of that, His worthiness of God having entered into covenant with Him. Now the test involves taking His son Isaac, described in verse 2 as, Your son, your only son, whom you love. And He tells him to go to the land of Moriah and to offer him there as a burnt offering. As you know, the story Abraham rises early the next morning with Isaac and some of the servants and they set off to the mountain that God will show them, God Elohim. And in an incredible display of obedience and trust in the Lord, Abraham goes and Isaac, his son, goes unquestionably with him also, who is in himself, Isaac, displaying a similar trust in his father as his father is displaying in God. Now at first, Isaac goes in ignorance, asking his father as they approach the mountain to sacrifice. He says, my father, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? To which Abraham replies in verse 8, God, Elohim, will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so the two of them walked on together. When they get to the place on the mountain... However, Isaac learns that he himself is going to be the sacrifice. And so Abraham, his father, built an altar there in verse 9, arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then, as Abraham stretched out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son, and as Hebrews 11.19 tells us, he did so believing that God could raise him from the dead. Nonetheless, he takes this knife, raised to in obedience to God, offer his son Isaac, his only son, his son whom he loved, as a sacrifice. And as he does so, in verses 11 through 12, the angel of the Lord appears again. And the angel of the Lord again calls from heaven and stops him saying, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now again, this is stunning. This is absolutely stunning. Listen to what the angel says. He says, You, Abraham, have demonstrated by your obedience that you fear God. You fear God. That is the God who created the world, the God who entered into covenant with you, the God who is ruler over the nations. This is the God you fear and you were going to sacrifice your son. And you would expect then, after he says that, for him to say something like, you have not withheld your only son, the son whom you love, from him. Right? 
You fear God, you've not withheld your son from him. Or you could expect, maybe that he would say, you fear God, you have not withheld your son from God. But that's not what he says. Look at what he says. You fear God in your obedience, but you have not withheld your son, your only son, this is the angel of the Lord speaking, from me. From me. Now that is absolutely stunning. Absolutely stunning. To whom was Abraham offering his son? Well, he was offering his son to God, according to the beginning of the chapter. And yet here he is saying he is offering, in essence, to the angel of the Lord, the one who is the angel of the Lord. He is distinct from and yet equal to God. This angel then speaks to him a second time and affirms the Abrahamic covenant in verse 18. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. He is distinct from God and yet he is equal to God. Let's look briefly at a third passage and we'll have to go a little quicker here. Exodus chapter 3. Turn over to Exodus chapter 3. Again, a passage you're familiar with. In Exodus 3, God has preserved his people in Egypt, he, whom he led there through Joseph. He's protected them and he's formed them into a great nation. Now they have been there for approximately 400 years. I think he just fell asleep for a bit. Uh, he's been there for approximately 400 years, the nation has, as was promised in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 14. And they're now sitting under this despotic rule of Pharaoh, who, is made this, who has made this nation into slaves and their lives miserable. So they cry out to God in Exodus 2, 24. And he says, God heard their groaning, God Elohim, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, to say that he remembered his covenant here does not mean he had forgotten his covenant, but it's a biblical way to announce that he is now going to act based on his covenant. He's going to take action based on his promises and his relationship with them. And so now he calls Moses his servant, whom he had set aside uniquely and designed to lead his people from the bondage of Egypt. And he appears to him in verse 2 of chapter 3. And again... In this appearing of God, of remembering His covenant with His people, the angel of the Lord, again, is the one who appears. The angel of the Lord, in verse 2, appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, Moses did, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. A truly amazing sight. But the point to notice is this, is that it was the angel of the Lord who was appearing to Moses in the burning bush. And yet immediately the language begins to identify this angel with Yahweh, with Yahweh. Look at what he says there. When the Lord, Yahweh, saw that he had turned aside, God, Elohim, called to him from the midst of the bush. Who is in the midst of the bush? It is the angel of the Lord. And then this angel tells him, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And then he identifies himself as the God Elohim of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Now indeed, Moses understood that he was in the presence 
of God, the presence of deity. So it says in verse 6, Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is the God who heard Israel's cry, the God who is responding to His people, the God who is now manifest in the angel of the Lord who is speaking to Moses from the midst of the fire. Now later, Moses is going to address this angel as God in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, who was speaking to him from the midst of the fire, and he asked him his name, to which the angel replies, I am who I am, Yahweh, that's where it comes from. Now clearly here, the angel of the Lord is speaking to Moses, is equal to the God of Israel, the God of the covenant. He is yet distinct from God, but equal. Now we could go over these passages and multiply them again and again and again. If we were to continue, we could see this is the angel of the Lord who speaks as God and receives the worship of God from such people as Balaam in Numbers 22, to Israel in Judges chapter 2, to Gideon in chapter 6 of Judges, to Samson's parents in chapter 13, to David in 2 Samuel, to Elijah in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. He is identified as being in the pillar of cloud of, and the fire that led Egypt out of the nation of Egypt, or excuse me, let Israel out of the nation of Egypt during the Exodus in Exodus 14, 19. It is the angel of the Lord who executes God's vengeance when he destroyed 185,000 Assyrians to death in 2 Kings 19, 35. And he is the angel of the Lord who killed thousands upon thousands of Israel when David sinned by counting the people in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. What can we say about this angel of the Lord? We can say then he is distinct from God and yet he is sent by God to reveal God's will and to reveal God's word. Secondly, he speaks God's words and message yet he speaks them with his own authority. He speaks them with his own authority. Thirdly, he is both addressed as God, the God of Israel, and receives worship as God from God's people. Now there's one other line of thought that I want to mention here in terms of this expectation, this thought, this mysterious plurality within God, this mysterious one who interacted with the people of Israel who was equal to God and yet distinct. It is this, namely that the Old Testament anticipated a Messiah who would be a physical descendant of David, which we've already looked at, yet possess attributes that belong to God alone. I'm going to show you just a couple of texts here. Turn over quickly to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. A text you're familiar with. We read it probably every Christmas as one of our scripture readings. And yet here I want to notice just a few things in relation to this anticipation, this view of God this, that is re- here revealed to us subtly, though not so subtly, in the text of scripture. Isaiah 9, chapter 6 through 7, and beginning in verse 6, he says, For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us. Now, contextually, this child was first anticipated back in chapter 7, 14, in a promise that was made to the wicked king Ahaz. And he was told, a, a sign will be given to you. A virgin, or it could be translated a young woman, will be with child. Now, there was... An immediate fulfillment of this in chapter 8, verse 3, 
bear with my pronunciation, Mahir Sha'al Hashbaz, in 8.3, who was a child of Isaiah the prophet. However, this child cannot be the one referred to in verse 6 of chapter 9 because the child in verse 6 of chapter 9 is still anticipated for the distant future long after Isaiah's son was born. Now, some claim that this child was Hezekiah the king, but it cannot be Hezekiah the king because he does not fit any of these descriptions. He did not accomplish the things that are credited to this child, nor did he bear any of these titles. This is a child who is utterly unique, and as we'll see, this is a child who would be associated with the promise to be the son of David. So here in Isaiah 9-6, the child is a child yet to be born. He will be human, clearly, for he will be a son. He will be a son. And yet he is a son who will be given. He will be given. And yet he's clearly more than a man. He's not less than a man, but he is more than a man. Now, despite the effort of some to argue that these names are not titled as those deities, the commentator had probably written one of the best contemporary commentaries on Isaiah, John Oswald, succinctly notes this. Although some commentators have expended a great deal of energy attempting to make these titles appear normal, they are not. They are not. They are unique. They are striking. And they are titles that refer to this child. Let's look at them briefly. He is called then in verse... 6, the end of verse 6, wonderful counselor, wonderful counselor. The root behind this term wonderful is the same term used to describe the miracles of God that he performed when he delivered his people from Egypt. Stunningly, it is the same term used to describe the angel of the Lord in Judges 13, the angel of the Lord who appeared to Samson's parents. And he says in verse 18, the angel of the Lord said to him, because they asked his name, and the angel of the Lord responded this way, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful, wonderful, the same term used here. Here that term, wonderful, is referred to this child. And he is a wonderful child who will display the wisdom of God as counselor. As a counselor. In chapter 11 too, the same wisdom is applied to the Messiah again. And yet there in connection with the Spirit of the Lord. In verse 2 of chapter 11, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding. In other words, he will be a Messiah who will bear titles of deity and a unique relationship to the Holy Spirit. Notice next then that he is called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. Mighty God. Now some translators want to deny again the clear force of this passage and seek to render this phrase, Great Hero. Great Hero. However, this is highly strained, highly strained. This phrase, El Gabor, is repeatedly translated as a reference to God throughout the Old Testament. It's always translated that way. Indeed, in verse 21 of chapter 10, it's the exact same phrase, which is clearly a reference to the God of Israel. He says, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Mighty God. And that's exactly how it should be translated here And the translators are correct. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. He will be called Mighty God. He will be called Eternal Father. Now ancient Near East kings, some and even some of Israel's kings, referred to their role as king and they referred to it in the sense of fatherhood. Of fatherhood. 
Here, however, it is a king whose fatherhood is eternal. It is an attribute of God alone. As a matter of fact, Isaiah will say later in Isaiah 43, just don't turn there, verse 13. Even from eternity, I am He, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand I act and who can reverse it. He is the eternal, almighty, and powerful God. And here, this one who is coming is bearing that same quality of nature, of eternality. And He is the eternal Father, which is to say, He is going to be a King who exercises a kind of fatherhood that can only be exercised and is exercised in a way that is equal to the nature of God Himself. Note next, He is the Prince of Peace, this coming Messiah who by virtue of his nature, wisdom and power and person will be able to establish peace, will be able to establish peace for his nation, his people, Israel. He will establish peace as the rest of Isaiah particularly will unfold for us, one, by bearing the penalty for the sin of his people and also by crushing all opposition to God. And he says then in verse 7, That there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. This child then is also a son, a child who is a son who is equal to God, who receives the titles of deity and who alone will accomplish the promises of the covenant. This is the one anticipated Clearly, they would not have understood this totally, but there was a clear anticipation of this Messiah, this mysterious figure who was bearing titles equal to God, who was the Davidic king, who was a son. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to skip over some of these others, but write them down just as references. Psalm 45, 6 through 7, which is repeated in Hebrews 1, 8. There it says in Psalm 45, 6-7, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. The psalm is a marriage, a psalm about the marriage celebration of the king of Israel, and most particularly Solomon, and yet the language there goes beyond the human king and is directly applied to Solomon or to Jesus in Hebrews 1.8. There's Micah 5.2, which was clearly understood to be messianic. In fact, in uh, Matthew 2.6, when Herod summoned the leaders of the Jews to find out where the Messiah was going to be born, they quoted from Micah 5.2. He was out of you, Bethlehem. A ruler is going to be born. One is going to be, go forth. Yet they stop there, but the remainder of the verse says, His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now some argue that this is referring to the Davidic kings of the past, even King David in the past. However, the prophecy here is clearly pointing to the future. And the one who's going to come in the future, this is the significant point, is the one who already existed in the past. The same idea, in some ways, there of Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, the one who is coming is the one who already existed in the time of David. This is eternal God. Eternal God. Now, in all these passages, we're barely scratching the surface and we're not even addressing such passages as Psalm 2, Zechariah 12, 10, and many others. However, what I want you to see is simply this. That in the Old Testament, there is clearly one God who created the heavens and the earth. One God who was ruler over the nations. One God who entered into 
covenant with Israel. One God who was the Savior of the world. And yet, within this one God, there is something more. There's something more. There's something mysterious. There's something wonderful. There's something that more than meets the eye. There is the idea of plurality. More than one. Now the people, and particularly the leaders, should have known more than they did. They should have been, and this is the point, more prepared to receive the revelation of Christ as the Son of God. Indeed, Jesus is confronting them because they did not understand their Scriptures clearly enough. That's why He's pointing them back to Scriptures all the time. He said, read your own Scriptures. Read Psalm 110. Clearly, clearly, there is more to God than you are acknowledging. And they should have known that. They should have known that. They should have been more ready to receive the revelation of Christ when He appeared had they simply read their Scriptures more closely. They should have been suspicious that Christ is fulfilling everything that was anticipated in the Old Testament. And I would say that is not just them. It is us today It's a matter of looking at the Scriptures, thinking about them, considering them, wrestling with the text, and wrestling with its implications, which they were unwilling to do. Now, in the last few minutes, I want to briefly, and this is obviously going extremely, extremely fast, and so I'm going to go through this rather quickly, but I think we can finish it. Let's then consider what is this glorious revelation of Christ in the New Testament, this glorious revelation of Christ in the New Testament. With the appearance of Christ, so the glory of God was manifest in human flesh. The glory of God was manifest in human flesh. And interestingly, he is one who, like the angel of the Lord, was sent by God. And interestingly, the angel of the Lord is not referred to again. He is mentioned in the birth announcements and angel of the Lord, but it is clearly not the same one that we looked at in the text in the Old Testament. But here is Christ sent by the Father. He is the one whom John said, by whom all things came into being and nothing came into being that has come into being. This is the one who is the Word of God, the eternal Word, the Creator. He is the one who took on humanity. He is the one, as we'll mention in a bit, who spoke to Moses in the burning bush as he identified himself in John 8, 58, before Abraham was I am. He is Yahweh whom Isaiah saw in the temple, John chapter 12. He is the one who claims to be equal to God. In Matthew, he is God with us. He is the one who forgives sin. He is the one who alone knows the Father in chapter eleven twenty-seven, He is the one who is included in the name singular of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whom every believer in God through Christ is to be baptized into that name. He is called God by Thomas in John 20, 28. My Lord and my God. And Jesus not only does not deny that, but He affirms and says, well, blessed are those who don't believe that and don't have to stick their hands into the holes that are in my body. He's referred to God in Romans 9, 5, Titus 2, 13, and Hebrews 1, 8. You can look those up. Now again, what I'm going to present here is barely an introduction to the topic. But I hope even in its brevity, we can see and get a taste and feel for the glory of Christ as the one who fulfilled all that the Old Testament 
anticipated, particularly as the one who fulfilled the reality of God with his people. Now, in order to help remember this, there's a helpful acronym, and this is not original to me. I have borrowed this. It's been around for quite a while. The acronym is this. It's called HANDS. HANDS. And we'll go through each of these briefly. H stands for that Christ bears the same honors of God. A says that Christ bears the attributes of God. N stands for Christ who bears the name of God. D stands for Christ who does the deeds of God. And S stands for Christ who is seated with God on his throne. Now we'll go through all of those, but I wanted you to mention those so you can write them down. Now let's look at these again very briefly. Christ shares the honors of God. The honors of God. Isaiah 42.8 says this, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Isaiah 48.11, the end of the verse, My glory, God says, I will not give to another. I will not give my glory to another. If you want to provoke God, and if you want to bring the displeasure and the wrath of God, then seek to share your glory with His. And He utterly opposes that. He utterly opposes that. He will not share His glory as the one and the only true God. And yet... Christ shares the glory of God, the honor of God. Let me point you to one text. John chapter 17, verse 5 through 10. In his prayer to the Father, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. Let me tell you, folks, that's blasphemy if he's not God. That's blasphemy. He should be stoned immediately. And yet it was true of him. Now, Father, glorify me with Yourself with the glory which I had with You before the world was as the Eternal One. He says later, All things that are Mine are Yours, and Yours are Mine. And guess what? I have been glorified in them. Blasphemy for a created creature. Totally commensurate with the reality of one who is God who is God. He shares the honors of God. You can jot down Hebrews 13, verses 20 through 21 also. Indeed, the Father places, uh, in other places, the Father is said to only be glorified in and through the Son. So not only is He sharing His glory, He's inextricably bounding His glory to Christ the Son. So in 1 Peter 4.11, he says this, after saying how we should, as Christians, be exercising our gift for the service to one another in love, he says this, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, get this, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Christ shares the glory and the honor of God. Revelation 4-5, through particularly chapter 5, he shares the worship of the redeemed in heaven with God. 2 Peter 3.18, you can jot that down. And besides this, this isn't even addressing the fact that Jesus is loved, trusted in, served, prayed to, obeyed, feared, as God alone is to be loved, trusted, served, prayed to, feared, and obeyed. 
He shares the honor of God. Note secondly, that's the H. The A, the attributes of God. He shares the attributes of God. Now Jesus, the eternal God, Philippians 2.6 tells us that he existed in the form of God before he united himself to humanity. And in humanity then, yet he bore all of the attributes of God. As a matter of fact, Paul says this in Colossians 2.9. In him... The fullness of God dwelled in bodily form. The fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now there is one sense in which such incommunicable attributes, if you're familiar with that term, those things that are unique to God alone, that could never be shared in by a man, such as his immutability, such as his omniscience, his omnipotence, and his omnipresence, all of those omni words to describe God. And yet, though Christ possessed those in the flesh, and in some ways they are veiled, yet they were not without expression. Particularly by the fact that He was the Son of God who was in the flesh, who was in a perfect and a full union with God, the Holy Spirit, whom John 3.34 tells us He received without measure. In other words, he demonstrated in the flesh one who was in full possession of the attributes of God. And so it was of Jesus alone that it could be said he was the image of God, the exact representation of his nature. Of Jesus alone could he say in response to show us the Father, why do you ask me that, Philip? Do you not know that if you've seen me, you have seen the Father? John 14, 9. What are these attributes? He was eternal. He was eternal. We already looked at one. Philippians chapter 2, 6. He existed in the form of God. No created being exists in the form of God, but God alone. In John 17, He's one who has eternally shared the glory of God. In fact, His very name, Son of God, indicates His eternality. For He is eternally the Son of the Father, and the Father is eternally Father of the Son. The Father didn't become Father. He is eternally the Father, which requires that Christ be eternally the Son of God. We already mentioned in John 8.58 that Christ has identified Himself with I am that I am. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And so what did the Jews want to do after that? They wanted to pick up stones and stone Him. Which again, were it not true, would have been a completely justified action. He is eternal. More to say, but let's move on. Jesus is immutable. He is immutable. Hebrews 13.8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in that context, therefore, He is to be trusted and loved and adored always. Always. As God is. Jesus is omnipresent. Matthew 18.20 Wherever two or three are gathered in My name, I am there in their midst. That means whether in China... That means whether in America, that means whether in Europe somewhere, it doesn't matter, Christ's presence is there. Matthew 28, 20, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ is. 
Jesus is omnipotent, John 1.3. All things came into being by Him. Who brings all things into being, a universe that we can begin to fathom its greatness, who does not possess the power of God? Indeed, He's called God in that context. Hebrews 1.3, He upholds all things by the word of His power. Philippians 3.21, He will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. That's Christ. That's Christ. That is the exalted Christ. He is omnipotent. He's going to subject all things to Himself. With the power that he shares with the Father. Jesus is omniscient. Revelation 2.23. He says, I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Christ is the one who does that. And also by virtue of his union with the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And when we appear, He will judge with perfect discernment, perfect wisdom, because He has all knowledge. This is the God of Psalm 139. Where can I flee from your presence? Where can I go? Nowhere. If I make my bed in Sheol, nowhere I go can I flee from the presence of my God. And so it is with Christ. So he shares the attributes of God. He shares the honors with God. He shares the attributes with God. And here the end, he shares the names of God. We already mentioned he shares the singular name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, into which all believers are baptized. That is significant. He shares a name equal with the Father and equal with the Holy Spirit of God. It was in the name of Jesus that his disciples performed the miracles that he sent them out to do. For example, in Mark chapter 9, 38 through 39, Acts 3, 6, and many others. Now the name here, of course, is not simply a title. It's not simply an identification. We've looked at this. Name and the idea of a Hebrew mind, and particularly in reference to God, is a name that encapsulates all of who he is, all of his nature, his character, his promises, his attributes, his acts. All of who God is, is contained in the name of God. Therefore, Acts 4.12 says this, There is salvation in no other... Name, for no other name has been given among men by which a man may be saved. That is the name of Christ. It is the name of Savior and Lord that the Father gave to him and by which Christians are kept in John 17, 11 through 12. It was the name of Jesus for which his servants were willing to give their life. He says in Matthew 10, you will be hated by all on account of my name. Paul says we are to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He bears the name of Lord and when used in reference to Christ has the same attributes and authority as Adonai in the Old Testament. It is clearly a reference to Him as God. Indeed, listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He shares a name equal to God. Indeed, a name that only has been designed for God to receive His glory only through the name of Christ, whom every knee will bow to. Many, in fact, will stand before Him on the day of judgment, 
Mark or Matthew 7:21 and say, "Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? In your name." Of course, in that case they did it falsely and they will be exposed as such. And Paul says in Romans 10 that we are to call upon the name of the Lord in order to be saved. He shares a name equal to God. Note, fourthly, the deeds. Honors of God, the attributes of God, the names of God. He does the deeds of God. We've already noted that Jesus was God's agent in creation. His agent in creation. John 1, Colossians 1, 16-17 and others. He is the creator, which is a prerogative of deity alone. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 8, chapter 6. He says, Yet for us there is but one God, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. He is God's agent in creation. He possesses the power to do the deeds of God. In fact, it was by this power that He raised Lazarus from the dead, that He walked on water, that He calmed the storms with a word, that He fed thousands with a few loaves and fish. He is God, and God alone can do that. The greatest testimony to His power, however, and to His deeds and having the power to do the deeds of God is in His raising Himself from the dead. Now, His being raised from the dead is attributed to the Father, to the Spirit, and also to Christ. In reference to Christ, He says this in John ten eighteen: I have authority to lay it down, speaking of his, his death, His life. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Who alone can do that but God? Note lastly here, we need to finish. He's seated on the throne of God. And this was mentioned briefly last week. So he shares the honors of God. He has the attributes of God. Shares the names of God. He does the deeds of God. And he's seated on the throne of God. We looked at this last week briefly. But sitting on the throne with God, he receives worship with him. Revelation 5.13 To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Hebrews 8.1 He has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Indeed, it is from this position at the throne of God that he sits in Ephesians 1, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. This is Christ, beloved. The very last scene of the Bible, Jesus is on the throne, Jesus the Lamb with the Father, and these precious words come from Revelation 22.1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from what? The throne of God and of the Lamb. The throne shared by God and by the Lamb whom purchased men from every tribe, nation, and tongue for God. He is God. He is God. And yet the great marvel of the deity of Christ and the glory of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is this. Not simply the fact, but that this is revealed to us in the context of redemption. It is that God gave His Son to suffer in our place. It is that this God became a man and in the power of the Holy Spirit lived a sinless life and gave himself up on the cross to suffer for sin, to conquer death on our behalf. I want to just mention to you a striking verse, a striking verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says this, Paul does. 
Listen to this. If the rulers of this age had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Who was on the cross? The Lord of glory was on the cross. It was the Lord of glory on the cross. According to Paul in Acts chapter 20, it was through the crucifixion that God purchased the church with His own blood. With His own blood. That is striking. And it's by the self-sacrificing grace and love that we are saved to be freed from our sin, to worship Him, to love Him with all of our hearts, souls, mind, and strength as Jesus laid before the Pharisees and to live forever in His presence and in His glory. I hope that you meditate much on the glory of our God and of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for the glory of the Gospel. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank You that You who spared the killing of Isaac, You who stayed, as it were, Abraham's hand, did that knowing that full well you would not have the penalty of death, even the very weight and curse of having your father's face turned away. You would not be spared that excruciating suffering on the cross because though you spared Isaac, you would lay down your life. You would lay down your life as the Son of God in flesh Lay down your life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Lay down your life in perfect obedience and love to the Father. Lay down your life that the Father might be glorified, that you might be glorified, and the glory of God might be manifest in you in your redeeming and saving work. You indeed are glorious. And we praise you that that glory is displayed in our redemption. Yes, it's displayed in judgment. Yes, it's displayed in your divine justice being upheld in a place called hell. But it is even more wonderfully and more gloriously displayed at the cross where you redeem sinners such as us. And we delight in that glory. And I pray if there's any here who yet have a veil over their eyes and don't see that glory, they don't love you and adore you and want to serve you and honor you and trust you and don't appreciate you and long to think about you in your word. I pray that you would remove that veil by the spirit which we sang about earlier and that you would show them the glory of Christ, the very thing Paul prayed for in 2 Corinthians 3. That the veil would be removed and that his people, the Jews, would long to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. I pray that would be true for us here this morning. We thank you again, and we give you all honor and praise in the name of your most dear and your precious Son. In the name of Jesus, amen.